0: Um, And as we transition into our uh, sermon time, I'm going to invite Shandis here to read the scripture for us.
1: This is the word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, set his seal to his, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.
0: Amen. Thanks, Shandice. Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? It's good? good? Uh, if you're new and we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you join with us. We are in week seven in the Gospel of John, and the good news is we only have about 52 to go, so we're moving right along. Uh, we love taking books of the Bible, going through them line by line, and examining what God has to say for us. Uh, I want to just push pause for a really brief moment, and I want to just mention something. The, the fact that we can gather like this... To open the scriptures, to study God's word, is a great privilege, is a great joy. Amen? And uh, as uh, our nation celebrates Veterans Day, uh, I want to just say this. Number one, uh, the United States of America is not perfect. We are not the promised land. We are not heaven on earth. Uh, We are not the new Israel. We have many issues. Amen? Uh, I think I can get an amen from everybody on that one. With that said, we have some incredible privileges to be able to gather like this, to open the scriptures, to worship God, to be able to, um, even just to gather publicly like this uh, freely. And so we are very thankful to God for those freedoms, and we're also thankful to those uh, on Veterans Day, of the weekend, as we celebrate. We want to thank those who have served to protect our freedoms. And so I wonder if we could take just a quick moment. If you have served, if you're active duty, if you're retired, whatever, would you just take a moment and stand? And we want to just show our appreciation by giving you a round of applause. Would you do that, please? Anyway? Thank you. We're... So thankful to be able to gather like this and to open up the Word of God, and uh, I'm just going to warn you right now, today we're going to talk about pride. And, you know, there's a couple of things that are dangerous to pray, right? (laughs) It's dangerous to pray, Lord, give me patience, because He's going to give you opportunities to grow in patience. And it's also really dangerous to pray, Lord, give us humility, because He's going to give you opportunities to practice humility. And even as I come to this text today and come to this sermon today, I've had several opportunities this week to bump up against my own pride and my own inadequacy. And what I am praying for us now as we go into this time is I'm gonna ask that God would help each of us to lower our walls that, that tend to go up when we start talking about pride and humility. So if you would, join me in that prayer and let's invite God to do what he wants to do here today. God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the fact that we can open the word of God and we can hear words of life given to us. We can hear words that are not simply man's words, but, but, but God, words that were given to these human authors by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in concert with them. God, this, 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 this scripture that is so relatable because it's human, but this scripture that also moves us beyond ourselves because it comes from heaven. And so I pray, God, you would do a work in us today. I ask and I pray for myself and for all of us that you would help our walls and our defenses to go down as we talk about pride. And God, for myself, I ask that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may our attention and our affection go to Jesus now in whose good name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a quick question. How many of you have ever been in a wedding? Either got your own wedding or a bride, you know, bridesmaid, groomsman, a lot of you, right? What are people's what's your favorite part of the wedding? What are the, what are the things that people like? The food, okay? Hopefully the food. Somebody said cake in the first service. That's good. The kiss, dancing, okay? The dress? When it's over? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think that whenever people are po- uh, polled or surveyed, one of the things that people really love is, you know, when the bride first appears and you watch the groom's face and that, that kind of moment, right? As a pastor, I get to do weddings, and I actually have, I have two favorite parts. Um, my favorite part, my first favorite part, is the giving away of the bride, and it's because the father of the bride so often messes it up, Okay? <laughs> Uh, it's, it shouldn't be that hard. Who gives this woman to be wed? Her mother and I. I have had dads say, my mother and I. <laughs> I have, I have had, I had one father say, her mother and mine. And then I also had one, one father of the bride said, your mother and I. To, and I was like, no, your mother. <laughs> just, it just, I don't know, the emotions are running. The passions are running. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a moment. I, I love that moment. But honestly, sincerely, my, my favorite part of every wedding— is actually the vows. And when I do weddings... I don't allow the bride and the groom to read their own, to write their own vows and to read them in the ceremony because most times when they write their own vows, what they write is a very uh, beautiful expression of love and sentiment, but there are no commitments. There are no vows actually made. If people want to write those things, I often encourage them we could add that onto the service or we could share that in the reception or find some other time to, to, to share that sentiment. I'm not against sentiment, but when we have a wedding, what we're there for is this commitment, this, this vow, right? This, this commitment. I'm taking you to be my wife. I'm taking you to be my husband, to give myself to you, to commit to you as to no other. The vows are really, in, in my estimation as the pastor, that's the central point of the wedding. That's what we're there for, is to make this commitment. Now, I want you to imagine that you're at a wedding, And I want you to imagine that I'm I'm officiating it, and we're starting to go through the, you know, do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you take this man to be your husband? We start to go through, and all of a sudden, the best man jumps in between the bride and the groom and says, you know, I'm going to let you finish in a minute, but at my wedding, we had the best vows of all time, right? And he he kind of inserts himself into this moment and just kind of jumps in. and, and, And how would you feel in that moment? Awkward? How do you think the bride or the groom might feel in that moment? Anger, yeah? The bride's angry at the groom for like, who is this clown that you invited to be your best man, right? That would be completely inappropriate, would it not, to just jump in in the middle of that scene, in the middle of that moment, that moment that is not about you, that moment is not about the best man. The best man has other roles to play, has other jobs to do, but in that moment, in the middle of the vows, the best man, his job is to fade into the background, is it not? Can you imagine the pride and the, the, just the arrogance, the hubris to jump in and, and to do that in the middle of a wedding ceremony. That's the analogy today as we're looking at this passage that John the Baptizer uses for pride. Specifically for his role, his part that he plays in the story with Jesus. And so as we talk about pride today, we're going we're to unpack this. And the big idea that I, I hope to get across today is this, that, that pride blinds us. Pride has this blinding effect. Not only does it, it blind us to our own pride, but it really blinds us to the greatest truth, the greatest reality that Jesus is greater than anything else. That Jesus is at the center of the story, that Jesus should be at the center of our lives, that Jesus should be, as the various, you know, New Testament writers say, that Jesus should be above all and he should be preeminent over all, that Jesus is really what it's all about. Our pride blinds us in all sorts of ways, but specifically, our pride blinds us to that truth. And if I could just say, in the church, oftentimes pride is one of those sins that gets a pass. Pride is one of those sins that we could maybe wink at or kind of turn a blind eye to. There's a, an author, Jerry Bridges, he wrote a book called um, Respectable Sins. Sometimes in the church, you know, there's those sins like drunkenness or, uh, you know, sexual immorality or theft or, or greediness or just these overt sins. And in the church, we can kind of recoil at those sins. And then other ones that are a little more respectable, we can give a pass to. Friends, pride is poison. It affects and infects everything else. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he says that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So my hope and my prayer today is that as we dig in on this issue of pride, we would not turn a blind eye to it. We would not give it a little pat on the head. We would not say that this is one of those acceptable sins while we focus on other more, you know, so-called gross-looking sins, but that we would understand that pride really is at the root of almost all of our other sins. All of our other sins come from a place of pride. And I honestly, let me just say this too. I want us to grow in humility. Myself, no one No one in this room can say, you should learn from me because I am very humble. (laughs) The moment you raise your hand and offer that advice, you've proven that you're not actually so humble. We all, by God's grace, though, want to grow in the direction of humility, to put our pride to death and to have our eyes focused on Jesus in new and increasing ways. And honestly, the more that we're able to do that, I believe the more joy we'll have. Not only does pride rob us of contentment and common sense, it robs us of joy. Pride puts us at the center of the story. And Jesus, when he's at the center of the story, well, he said he came to give us life abundantly. He said that that he wants us to share in his joy. And so I want joy for us. And so it's going to come as we uh, do battle against our pride. So we're going to see three things. We're going to see why we must decrease, We're going to see how we can decrease, and we're going to see what happens when we do decrease. So we're going to see those three things in this passage. First, a little bit of setup here. Verse 22, after this, so after Jesus spoke with Nicodemus and and gave those famous words of John 3.16, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they left the big city, they left Jerusalem, they're going into the countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, do you remember back in chapter one, who, who's the guy that was doing all the baptizing? Who's the guy that got famous for putting, dipping people in water? John the baptizer. Remember, there's, there's John the baptizer and there's John the apostle who wrote this book. There's multiple Johns. It's very confusing. I apologize. Uh, just, I'll try my best to keep it straight for you and, and not confuse you more than it already is confusing. So When you think of baptizing, you think of John the baptizer. John, the baptizer, was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And then notice in parentheses here, for John had not yet been put in prison. This is a side note, but I find it interesting that John the Apostle, the one who's writing this gospel, assumes that you've already read the other gospels, the the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the so-called synoptic gospels. Where else in the gospel of John does it mention John the baptizer being arrested? Nowhere. Nowhere. So there's an assumption, John comes along later writing his gospel, and says, hey, I'm filling in some gaps, I'm filling in some details. You already know the story. I'm bringing some additional things to the table for you to think about and consider. I just find that fascinating, that the, the, the interwoven nature of the Bible, but the gospels in particular. Verse 25, so now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew. Some translations say over a certain Jew, a certain Jewish man, over purification. Purification being maybe another word for, for washing or for baptizing. See, baptism wasn't as widespread or as common as you might think. The, the Jewish people had certain washing ceremonies that the priests would engage in before they led in worship, and there were certain washing ceremonies that people would uh, engage in if they were a convert to Judaism. But people didn't just get baptized. That wasn't something you did. So John shows up and says, you all need to repent. You all need to believe that the kingdom of God is coming. Get baptized. And so this certain Jewish man goes out and goes, what in the world are you doing? We don't know the exact nature of their argument, but there's some sort of argument. There's some sort of theological discussion. What, what's happening here? What is this purification? So the disciples, they go, well, let's go to our teacher. They go to John the baptizer and said, Rabbi. He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Okay, quick question. Who is it that John bore witness to? Jesus. Jesus. That's right. The Sunday school answer is right on this one. Yes. John the baptizer was talking about Jesus. So they said, hey, you guys, you remember Jesus? Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John, you remember how we had a really successful baptism ministry going? And John, you remember how we had to maybe kind of run and, and go to a different area because the, the pressure from the religious leaders was coming? And, and now you, you remember that guy, Jesus, that you were talking about? Well, now he's starting to baptize people and everybody's going to him. We are losing followers. We are losing donors. We are numbers are down. It's not once, what it once was. Our, our baptism ministry is not going as strong as it once did. Do you see the pride there? Do you see the competitive nature of what's happening here? C.S. Lewis, again, a quote from him a couple times. He writes very well in, in Mere Christianity on the subject of pride. He says, pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. Pride is underneath when you and I look at our neighbor's house value on Redfin, just just to see, just just to see. (sighs) Pride is underneath when, you know, you're, you're... Talking with so and so, and they just got a new job offer, and you're thinking about, okay, well, they got how how much was their what was their job offer? What's their benefits package? And what did I get? Pride is underneath when I go to a pastor's function, and they say, oh, well, how many people attend your church? I don't know. I don't see numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Pride is competitive let me compare myself to you let me see what you're doing let me see i had a conversation we for anybody who comes early and helps us set up, we, we serve breakfast in the mornings. If you want to get up early, come join us at 7, set up. We feed you breakfast, and we started out just very simply, but the breakfast team has grown over the last six months, and there's a handful of different families that come, and they have been like, it is, it is getting competitive over who can bring the best breakfast, and we have been eating like kings and queens in the mornings, and so they said, they said to me after the first service, well, I guess we have to stop competing with the breakfast thing. I said, no, that's very godly. You're allowed to compete there. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Outdo one another in showing honor, and honor can also be translated as breakfast. So, uh, but there's this thing that rises up in us where we try to compare ourselves to one another. Am I better than them? Are they better than me? What you know, money and status and accomplishments. That's at the that's at the heart of pride. I do want to point out one thing. Our passage today doesn't go into John four, but there is a clarification coming. We'll we'll get this in our passage next week. But John points out that in John 4, verse 2, it says, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And I think there's wisdom there because. Jesus entrusted the ministry of, the, of baptism to his disciples to do it. Because I just want you to hypothesize for a moment. Imagine Jesus has died, risen again, ascended into heaven, and people start vying for position in leadership in the church. Like, well, I think I should lead, or maybe I could do this. And someone said, before, goes, well, I was baptized by Jesus Christ himself, so I think I should lead, right? I think there's some wisdom there. I think there's some safeguarding there. It's a clarification that John the Apostle felt like it was necessary to point out. It's not in our passage explicitly this week but I wanted to at least point that out to you as well. So, competition, pride, the followers of Jesus, the followers of John, competitive with Jesus, and his ministry is growing, and our ministry is shrinking. What is going to happen? What is John the baptizer going to say? How is he going to respond? Is he going to respond in pride? Is he going to respond in competition? Or is he going to respond in humility? Verse 27, John answered, (laughs) Let these words weigh on you now. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Why should we decrease? Why should, why should we seek humility? Why should we fight against our pride? Why? Because everything we have in life is a gift from heaven. A person cannot receive even how many things, Sound City? One thing. Not even one thing. So so how many things do we have that are inherently ours? None. None things. Zero. 0.00. What happens when we forget this truth is, is we can slip into a mindset that I'll call an entitlement mindset. We can have a gift mindset that John points us to, this Bible points us to, what God points us to, that everything in life is a gift. Or we can have this entitlement mindset, an entitlement mindset that says, I'm owed certain things. I deserve certain things. See, an entitlement mindset says, I'm owed certain things, but a gift mindset says, everything I have in life is a gift. An entitlement mindset gets jealous or envious or starts to covet the possessions or the lifestyle or the the experiences of other people. Whereas someone with a gift mindset says, nothing I have ultimately belongs to me. Nothing they have ultimately belongs to them. It's all a gift of God's grace. Why would I be jealous? An entitlement mindset is is a scarcity mindset, a hoarding mindset. I've got to get everything I can get. I've got to take everything I can take. I've got to hold on to everything I can hold on to. Whereas a, a gift mindset says, uh, my God, like the Psalm says, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Says he's given to me all things for life and godliness. He gives us every good thing for us to enjoy. He's got everything. Why do I need to hoard and have scarcity an entitlement mindset ends up in rivalries and factions. Basically, let's band together to take. Whereas a gift mindset says, let's band together to give, to practice generosity. An entitlement Mindset can give place to gossip and backbiting. Oh, can you believe what so and so did? Mm, bought another new car. I said, I didn't know they were doing so well. Mm, right? Just talking about and mm, God murmuring and, oh, this and that versus a, a gift mindset that says, "I am a recipient of God's amazing grace. How dare I look down on anyone else?" And here's the big one. This this is one for you to check in your heart. An entitlement mentality gives place to resentment and bitterness when expectations are not met. I expected this to happen. I thought this would happen. I'm owed this thing. I deserve this thing. And when those expectations are not met, there's resentment, bitterness, even overt anger versus someone with a gift mindset says the only thing that I am owed is judgment and condemnation for my sin? Why would I be bitter over anything that I thought I deserved and didn't receive? Would you agree with me that virtually everything in our culture is set up to encourage an entitlement mindset? I've I've been noticing recently a trend in advertising. It's probably not a trend. I've just noticed it more recently, but I think I'm up to four different businesses now if I listen to the radio or watch TV, um, an auto parts store, a steakhouse, uh, there was a, like a doctor's office maybe, and then I can't remember what the fourth one was. I've heard four different commercials where the message was, and, I'm, and it's not even, I'm not paraphrasing. It literally says, where it's all about you. I like, you know, an auto parts store. Come to, you know, Bobby's Auto Parts, where it's all about you. I'm like, well, thank you, because... I have been trying to convince my wife and children for years that it is all about me, and they're not listening to me. At least I can go to this auto parts store where they know the truth that I've been proclaiming for years, right? You know, come to Jimmy Joe's Steakhouse where the customer is always king. I'm like, yes, thank you, because I do want a steak, and I want it served by a serf, uh, you know, who kneels down at my table and gives it to me because, you know, that's just not the treatment I get at home, Right? Everything in our culture is really set up to kind of encourage us in this entitlement. You deserve it. You're owed it. You, you owe it to yourself. Treat yourself, whatever it might be. Would you agree with me that that is the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in? And some of you might actually have a defense right now where you say things like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that entitlement stuff, I work hard for everything I've got. I work hard. I apply myself. I'm not taking handouts from nobody. I'm not going to be anybody's charity case. I'm not going to take a handout from the government. I'm not going to take a handout from anybody else. I worked hard for what I have. And I would simply ask you that breath you just took in, where did you get that? The fact that your eyes opened this morning and you're awake and alive, where did that come from? The blood that you have coursing through your veins. Did you, did you originate that? The brain that you used. Yes, I'm not saying you didn't work hard. Thank God if you had a brain and you went to college and you applied yourself and you have hands that are strong so you can work hard. But where did you get that brain? Where did you get those hands? It's all a gift of God's grace. Amen? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven All of life is grace. All of life is a gift from God. And the sooner we admit that, the sooner we recognize that, and the more that we try to live in accordance with that, the freer we will be. John the baptizer gets it absolutely right. So that's why we should seek to decrease. Now how? How are we going to decrease? Verse 28 you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is saying, hey, you guys remember when I said, I'm not the Christ? You, you remember that, right? I said that, you bore witness, you agreed with me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the, the one who has come to save Israel. I pointed at the other guy, Jesus, and said, it's him. Why, why are you forgetting this? <laughs> Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is going to give us kind of two analogies here. And the first one is the analogy I used at the beginning, that of a wedding. He says, "I, I know my role in this dance. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. I'm the friend that gets to stand close enough to the groom to hear his voice. Sometimes when I do weddings, you know, I'm the pastor, I'll have a microphone, people can hear me, but when you do the vows, sometimes you don't always have a microphone, so the the bride and the groom, you can't can't hear their voice far out in, in the crowd. But you know who can hear the voice of the bride and the groom? The best man who's standing right there. He says, I am happy and I am joyful that I get to stand close enough to get to hear the voice of the groom. He says, I know my role. I know my part to play. John is able to not give place to pride. John is able to work towards humility because he knows where his part is in the story. He uses a second analogy. This one's a little bit more subtle, but he uses another analogy of a courtroom witness. Verse 31, he who comes from above, it's Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth, down here, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You see the contrast there? There's somebody from heaven and there's somebody from earth and they speak differently. Verse 32, he bears witness, this is Jesus, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus is the one from heaven. He's telling us things that are true. Who who should teach us about heaven? The one who's from earth or the one who's from heaven? The one who's from heaven. No one receives his testimony, but whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Here's here's the analogy. Saying there's somebody who's giving a testimony, somebody who's like a witness, and nobody's believing them even though they're an eyewitness. Nobody will believe them. Only some are believing them. Have any of you ever had to give testimony in court? I had to give testimony in court, not just be a juror, but I actually had to give testimony last year. I received a, uh, a phone call from the Edmonds Police Department and they said, hey, yeah, we, we pulled somebody over and there is a warrant for them and they're doing criminal behavior. And so we actually have arrested them and we found in their back seat mail that had your address on it. Did you give your mail to so-and-so? Well, no, I don't remember giving my mail to somebody with that name. They had just been going around the neighborhood, stealing mail out of people's mailboxes, looking, you know, looking for cash, looking for sensitive information, whatever. Hadn't done anything with it, just left it in their back seat. That's what I would do with my mail, too. And uh, <laughs> so I got called to a courthouse up in Everett, the Snohomish Courthouse. And it was like multiple weeks of scheduling and it was canceled. I'd driven up there. It took four hours out of my day. It got canceled. It got rescheduled for the next week. I had to wait in the lobby for hours and hours. And then finally they called me in and they said, Mr. Gray, uh, do you know this gentleman here with his name? I said, no, I don't know this gentleman here. And they said, did you ever give him any of your mail? I said, no, I didn't give him any of your ma- my mail. And, and they said, uh, you know, is there any reason why he should have any of your mail? I said, no, there's no reason why he should have any of mail my mail. Thank you. You're dismissed. That was literally as long as I was in the court. I'm like, I could have, I could have taken a selfie and just texted it to you. Like, you know, video, but okay, whatever. Now imagine if I was in that courtroom, do you know this person? No, I've I've never met them before in my life. Yes, you have. You know, somebody yelling out from the back of the court. No, I haven't. Did you, did you give them your mail? No, I didn't give them your mail. Yes, you did. I'm like, what are you? Stop. That'd be very frustrating. Why are you not believing my testimony? I, I'm the eyewitness. I'm the property owner. I'm the one that should know. And you're not believing my testimony. What, what, what John the baptizer is saying here, he's saying, I'm, I'm not the eyewitness. I'm not the one that you should be listening to for truths about God. I'm not the one that you should be listening to for truths about heaven. I'm just here to point you to him. Jesus is the star witness. Jesus is the key witness. Jesus is the eyewitness. He's the one that knows about heaven because he came from heaven. You should listen to him. Friends, we do not wage war against pride when we forget our part and our role in the story. Let me ask you this. (laughs) The story of redemption, right? The, The biblical story of redemption God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates mankind special in his image and likeness. Mankind rebels and sins, says we want to be our own God. We want to to live life on our own terms. The world is plunged into chaos and death and disorder and God says to Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your family to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the nation of Israel comes from that promise. And God uh, raises up a Messiah to come from the people of Israel and that Messiah lives a perfect life and then dies on a cross for our sins and then rises again on the third day conquering over sin and death and then ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit so that the news can go out to all the nations of the earth and then tre- Jesus says one day I'm returning and I'm going to set up my, my kingdom in totality here on earth and all death and sickness and crying and everything will be done away with once and for all. That, you know that story Story, that story of redemption, that big picture that we're a part of. What's our role in that story? We are the fools who need to be rescued. Sometimes here, here's how here's how prideful and self centered we can be. Israel, Philistines, Goliath, oh no. God raises up David. Hooray! Little shepherd boy defeats Goliath. Here's how you can be like David. Meanwhile, the point of the David story is that God raises up a deliverer for the fool Israelites who were too chicken to go out and fight against Goliath, even though God had promised to always be their deliverer. Guess who we are in the story. Please don't say David. <laughs> I'm not saying there aren't things we can learn from David. We can learn from David. But if you're talking about our part in the story, we're the chicken Israelites that need to be rescued. We are so prideful and self-centered that we can even take the story of redemptive history and make it all about us. And if you can't say amen, you can say, ouch. Our part in the story is that we desperately need a rescuer. We desperately need a savior. Jesus is the savior. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't do morally heroic efforts to prove to God that we're worth saving. We simply hold out our hands in desperation and say, son of David, have mercy on me. That's our part in the story. What's our role? We're the ones that need rescue. Now, if we understand that everything from life is a gift, and we start to recognize and and realize our role in the story as the ones who need rescue and redemption, we, we start to do damage against pride. We start to grow and increase in humility. And then there's a promise. What comes after this? Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Actually, just a moment ago in verse 34, we read about the Spirit. God gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. I want to just pause for a moment because we are so blessed to get a peek behind the curtain into the very nature and character of God himself. We as Christians serve and worship a Trinitarian God. Amen? Amen? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, within the nature of who God is, one God, three eternal persons, within the nature of who God is, is fellowship and community, and guess what? Love. God's love for us is an overflow of the love that God has within himself. This is incredibly good news for us, because think of people that you love. Think of your spouse or a close friend or children if you have kids. Somebody that you love. Would you be honest and say that on certain days your love is more than on other days? Would you be honest and say, yeah, your love, you know, kind of ebbs and flows, goes up and down depending on the day, depending on how you're feeling, depending on how they're acting. Our love is kind of an up and down game. But God's love for us is not like that. God's love for us spills out of, flows out of, overflows from the love that God has within the three persons of the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? And John gives us this little insight into it. So God loves us. God is for us. God's love is for us because God has love within who he is. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. Well, what do I got to do what rites do I have to go through? Do I have to get baptized? Do I have to take communion? You should get baptized. You should take communion. Do I have to join a communion You should join a communion Do I have to come to church every Sunday? These are all great things to do. What do I do to get right with God? That's all it is right there. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's no deed we do. There's no work we do. All that is required has already been done by Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then there's a warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the, what's the word, sound city? The wrath of God remains on him. People in our culture don't, generally speaking, like the idea of the wrath of God. I've heard people say, almost this exact phrase, I can't believe in a God who is angry and wrathful. I would submit to you that we should not believe in a God who does not have wrath as part of his character because wrath and anger is a right and proper response to injustice, exploitation, harm. Right now in our nation, What is dominating the news cycle, social media, TV, cable news, radio, is this series of revelations about people, politicians and uh, people in Hollywood in particular, who have used their place of power and authority to sexually exploit others, in particular, minors. You guys know what I'm talking about? And what is mind-blowing to me, I guess it shouldn't be, but it is mind-blowing to me, the wrath that I see poured out by people. The same people who would say, oh, I don't like that God that has wrath. They are literally on Facebook or literally to my face saying, I hope that so-and-so gets strung up by his ears. I hope that so-and-so, you know, they should be burned alive, tarred, and feathered." I mean, there's this outpouring of wrath over injustice, abuse, and exploitation. And yet then they turn on the other side and say God should not have wrath over abuse, injustice, and exploitation. You know what we call that? Hypocrisy. Even to use the silly analogy of a a best man interrupting the wedding. If the bride and the groom are in the middle of their vows, the best man jumps in the middle and pulls a Kanye West and says, I'm going to let you finish, but... Would you fault the bride for being angry? (laughs) Not in the slightest. Like you ought to be angry at that type of pride and hubris. And yet we, in our pride and arrogance, have done far worse to God. Let me simply say this. Some of you don't like the idea of God's wrath because you think of God's wrath as human wrath. Human wrath is different than God's wrath. Uh, There's a a pastor, I believe it was John Piper, an older pastor, retired, and he said something recently. He says, the older I get, the more convinced I am that there is no such thing as righteous anger in my own heart. (laughs) He's like, if there is righteous anger, I I don't know if I've ever had it. All of my anger is unrighteous. All of my anger is selfish, cranky, short-tempered, exploding at things I don't like. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is holy and pure, God's wrath is as one author puts it it's not a cranky explosion but it's his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which is eating away the creation and the humanity that he loves. We have to talk about God's wrath because Jesus talks about God's wrath but the promise is this for all who believe there's no wrath. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what's been done to you. To believe in the Son means you are invited into the love of God. You're invited into the love of God. No wrath remains for you. I want to close with this thought because there's another book that John the Apostle writes. At the end of the Bible, he writes a, a book called Revelation. John's a much older man. He has a, a vision. God Jesus appears to him and he has this vision of, of a, of a big wedding. He has a picture of this wedding feast and there's this lamb there and the wedding is of the lamb. And and then John looks and he says, wait a minute, there's, there's a bride coming. And this story, this wedding analogy takes on different meaning. Who's, who's the bride, the church, the people of God. R.C. Sproul says this, It is because of the love of the Father for the Son that we are invited to partake one day of the marriage feast of the Lamb. We are invited not simply as friends of the bridegroom or friends of the bride. We are the bride. Christ our Savior has set his love upon us and betrothed us to himself. He who died for us will come again someday to receive us to himself. Is that an amazing promise or what? Here we are, we're invited. Hey, decrease. Fade into the background. Get your eyes off yourself. Get the attention off yourself. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. He must increase. You must decrease. And then at the end of the age, guess what? We find ourselves right there, smack dab in the middle as the bride of Christ, the one upon whom he has placed all of his love and affection. And we're invited to the wedding, not as a groomsman, not as a bridesmaid, not as a DJ, thank God, (laughs) as the bride of Christ. What an amazing thought that is, amen? For those of you who are here who are Christians already, I simply want to ask you, where do you need to wage war against pride Not if, where. Where do you need to wage war against that entitlement mentality and see that everything in your life is given to you as a gift? And then for those of you who are here today who are not yet believers in Jesus, I have a very simple invitation. Today you're invited to believe in Jesus. To believe that he is the son of God. To believe that he died on the cross for your sin. To believe that he rose again to offer you new life. Sometimes we think we've got to have some eloquent prayer or some, you know, amazing act or feat of heroism. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes here. It's called Come Ye Sinners. It has a line in it. It's from Joseph Hart. It has this line. It says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't think you've got to get fit enough or good enough. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What does God want from you? Nothing, and that's the point. God, I come to you today with nothing. I give you my heart. I give you my life, and I receive your grace. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that in our hearts, there exists much pride. And so my prayer for all of us today is the the, the words of John the Baptizer we must decrease and you must increase. God, for, for all of, of us who have believed in Jesus, who have received your grace, would you strengthen us in this resolve to put our pride to death, to put our competition to death, to put our entitlement to death by the power of your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to not even, not even play games with it, God. God, for those who are not Christians here today, I ask and pray that you would, by your grace, give them the courage to come to you for, maybe for the first time and admit their need of you. God, I, I come, nothing nothing in my hands I bring, but I'm coming to you and asking for your grace and asking for your mercy. And then God, in, in, in coming to you with empty hands, coming to you in humility, realizing that in Christ we've been given the riches of heaven. I pray for our time of response now. May we be focused on Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to invite us to respond. And we're going to respond as we do in a couple of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We say this each week. If you're a guest or a visitor, we do not believe in or like arm twisting or guilting people into giving. So we don't practice that here. We believe that giving should be done as worship. And I would simply point out to you today, again, even in the light of that verse we read, What do you have in your bank account that you didn't already receive as a gift from God? It's all his anyways. And so the question isn't how much of my money should I hold on to or give? The question is how much of God's money should I give back to him in this time? So as you give, give as worship if you want information on how to give online or text to give, that's up on the screen. While you're giving, I'm gonna read some discussion questions to help us uh, this week in our community groups and our homes to, to talk through these things. Where in your life are you most critical of others? And then if you're being honest, where are you actually guilty of doing those same things as the people you criticize? Number two, where in your life are you prone towards that mindset of entitlement? And how is Jesus inviting you to see that everything you have is a gift from above? Number three, as you consider your own pride, how has knowing your place in the story of redemption helped you to grow in humility? How is God working on you? And then number four, I want you to read Revelation 19, verses six through nine. You can do this in your group and and think about where is our part in that wedding story and how does this truth empower us and build us up in God's love. And then we want to be prayerful as a church. So pray for yourself individually, but also for us as a church. Pray that we would decrease and Jesus would increase in us in every possible way. And then pray for those who are not yet Christians, that God would break through their pride and help them see their need for him. We'll welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of singing and for a celebration of the Lord's table. I invite our musicians to come as well. As they begin to hand out the elements for communion, uh, I'm gonna invite you to hold on to these and we're gonna celebrate this together in just a moment. I wanna read a, a little bit of a different passage. Usually we read from 1 Corinthians 11, but I actually wanna go to that, that passage in Revelation 19 and, and read that together today as we prepare ourselves for this, this feast this memorial meal, Revelation 19, verses six through nine. This is the apostle John writing. He says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Lots of people there. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse seven, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Friends, this, this, simple, um, this simple cup, this simple bread, this is not a feast, amen? <laughs> no one would mistake this for a feast, but it points to the reality that in Christ we've been invited to the great feast of all time. And it says here that it has been granted, let's say, verse seven, the bride has made herself ready. When we read in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about taking a minute to examine yourself. That's what this is talking about. God, where do I need to repent? In just a moment, our musicians, they'll play instrumentally. You'll have some time to just pray, reflect, repent, rejoice, but search your heart. God, where do I need to repent of pride before I eat of the bread and drink of the cup? It says that it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sound City, are you blessed? You are blessed. You've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when we enter into this time, let's do so with joy. He said to me, these are the true words of God. I'll pray for our time. And then when you're ready, you can eat and drink of the bread and the cup. And then we'll stand to our feet at the appropriate time and sing together. God, thank you. This simple bread, this simple cup is nothing significant from an earthly perspective. But God, from the spiritual perspective, it means everything. It means that Christ, our Savior, died and he rose again to offer us new life. God, it means that we're not the center of the story. Even now in our worship gathering, may this bread and this cup remind us that we're not at the center of the story, but our Savior Jesus Christ is. And God, may we rejoice in you that we've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we long for that day when we see you face to face, Lord Jesus. Come soon, we pray. And until that day, may we walk in your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.